The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, December 10th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Disclosure, I take the subway, and I use a Metro card to do so, and I pay for that Metro card with pre-tax dollars. A federal law allows me to do so. Now, public radio station WNYC makes me want to feel kind of guilty about it. Poor people actually spend more for the same monthly fare as do wealthy people. The poor pay more for Metro cards? That's terrible. Well, how does this go beyond what I already know? Because what I know is that if you deduct $100 from your taxes and you're in the 10% bracket, it means you save 10 bucks. And if you're in the 33% bracket, it means you save 33 bucks. So I'd always assumed, in fact, I knew that the more income you make, the bigger a break you get. But it turns out the real deal is this. The more income you make, the bigger the break you get. And that's it. The reporter, Matthew Sherman, presents us with a poorer woman and a richer man who pay the same price for their Metro card, but the poorer woman saves $37 in taxes, whereas the richer man saves $45. Scandal. In other news, the guy who bought really expensive yogurt during the 20% off sale at the TCBY at the Vince Lombardi rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike saved more money than the guy who bought a small yogurt with no sprinkles at the 20% off sale at the Vince Lombardi rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike. And you know that homeowner's deduction? People with higher mortgages save more. And you know, with every deduction, the higher bracket you're in, the more money you save. Hey, look. I'm for examples of demonstrating a screwed up tax code. I'm for documenting the winners and losers, how the gap between rich and poor hurts us. This was four minutes of audio that shed no light. And what's worse, began with this sentence. One of the joys of the New York City subway system is the great diversity of its riders. Noisy and quiet, neat and messy, and rich and poor. No, no, no. Quiet is much better than noisy. Neat and me- There is a debate on neat and messy, which is better, which is a joy. The great joys of the subway. All right. In the spiel, the CIA torture memo, and if torture ever works, and Maria Konnikova will be in to tackle the topic of mother's intuition in our Is That Bullshit segment. But first, a reconsideration of the issue of sexual assault on campus. Rape is such a big problem on college campuses that there must be a big change in how we've dealt with it. This is the logic guiding a movement to change policies. Among those changes are the sensible, don't dismiss complainants, don't intimidate women who feel they've been victimized. But in order to support accusers, need we strip some of the rights of the accused? For instance, here's what Zerlina Maxwell recently wrote in the Washington Post, quote, We should believe as a matter of default what an accuser says. Ultimately, the costs of wrongly disbelieving a survivor far outweigh the costs of calling someone a rapist. That line of thinking seems to be animating a number of on-campus policies, according to Slate's Emily Yaffe, who's written about the issue of rape on campus in a huge new piece titled The College Rape Overcorrection. Emily also takes aim at a lot of the most quoted statistics surrounding rape on campus. Hello, Emily. Good to be here, Mike. What was the question that you wanted this piece to answer? I wanted to point out that while 
rape on campus is real and is a serious problem, shaky and problematic studies are being used to inflate the dimension of the problem. And from that, very bad policy is being made, which captures young men who are not dangerous predators, but who are guys who thought they were having a consensual encounter, and it's ruining their lives. And that actually trivializes the whole subject and doesn't allow us to really identify the small, fortunately, number of people who probably need to be brought into the criminal justice system. The statistic of one in five is often repeated. Sometimes you even hear one in four. One in four women on campus will be raped. As you note, that comports with a rate of rape in a place like Congo, where rape is a tactic of war. So in your piece, which is uh, talking about, I mean, the word overcorrection is right there in the headline. Do you think you've proven that the one in five is clearly overstated, or have you just proven or at least offered a lot of evidence to really question if we could conclude that any statistic, any guess, is a better guess than another as far as uh, how often rape occurs? The one in five is presented by president on down as an absolute fact about what happens to young women over the course of the four years that they spend on campus. One in five of you will end up with a diploma and having been a sexual assault victim. I asked the lead author of the study if it's fair to use his study this way to describe the the experience of the 12 million American female college students. He was unequivocal. Absolutely not. Our study cannot be used this way. We never said it could. His study is of two campuses. They had a fairly low response rate. It was an online survey. And he said it does not represent every female student. And none of the authors ever said that. So in your piece, you have a couple of anecdotes that if you have any regard for the rights of the accused, we'll certainly raise your hackles. And one's about this University of Michigan student who had what he thought was consensual sex with a friend of his. What, and this is rare, his roommate who was in the room thought was consensual sex. They, both of the uh, two people having sex were in the same friend circle as the roommate. And then there was a diary that was discovered by uh, the mother. There was a complaint to the school. And then the University of Michigan student had to undergo a process that involved, you know, Skype interviews, and it seemed like a kangaroo court. You also write about a Yale case where the girl was drunk, the girl had texted him beforehand that seduction, I might seduce you, that's a possibility, and she even said that she didn't give consent in the evening but did have sex in the morning and she didn't resist then because, quote, she felt refusal would be too emotionally exhausting. I bought it that these two guys got railroaded by a system that didn't seem fair, but how far should we take anecdotes like this? I mean, if there are a few anecdotes like this against piles of evidence of women who are actually legitimately being assaulted, what's the correct calculus? I think the correct calculus, Mike, is that every case has to be taken on its own merits. You can't view this as a gender class thing, Uh, male accused, therefore male guilty which a lot of people think. Every case is an individual case, and the evidence must be looked at. I'll give you a couple of statistics. The group called United Educators, which is a higher education insurance group, it's a study from 2006 to 2010. They're going to have a new one coming out soon. Looking at the payouts this group has made over sexual assault 
complaints filed by students, male and female, saying they were not treated properly by the school. There were 262 of them. 72% of the payouts went to the accused male who said the process was a miscarriage of justice. Uh, $36 million payout. That's a lot of money. Do you think that on-campus judicial proceedings should be scrapped and let the law handle these charges? I very strongly think that if you think you're dealing with rape, that belongs uh, not in the hands of professors but prosecutors. Uh, What good does it do to society if you think you really have a rapist, so we're going to expel him? This is Jesse Matthew, the man now being held for the murder of Hannah Graham, a University of Virginia student who was murdered horribly. He's going to be charged with the murder of another uh, Virginia College student, Morgan Harrington. He was successively thrown out of two universities for rape. And, you know, you look back, would that the criminal justice system had caught up with him at the time? Emily Yaffe for Slate has written an 11,000-word piece called The College Rape Overcorrection. Thank you, Emily. My pleasure, Mike. With the holidays almost here, and of course, one being the Feast of the Immaculate Conception having already passed, you don't have time to go to the post office. Traffic, parking, a surfeit of elves packed with people mailing their holiday gifts. Use Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com is the best way to get your mailing and shipping done right from your desk. It's not complicated. It's easy. All you need is a computer a printer, and a habitat in the North Pole staffed with mythological beasts. No, not the last part. Just the computer and printer. And you can print official U.S. postage with stamps.com. You can print postage for any letter or any package. Anytime the mailman comes, he picks it up. Here's what you do. You go to stamps.com, and you go to the microphone at the top of the homepage, and you type in the gist. That gives you a special offer. It's a no-risk trial. It's a $110 bonus offer. It includes a free scale. It includes up to 50 Five dollars in free postage. It includes feed for Donner and Blitzen. Not all eight reindeer included, but it includes so much. That's stamps.com and enter the gist. Is mother's intuition real? Did mother's intuition stop a kidnapping? That's not me asking. That's media. Things like Yahoo Parenting. Like in the year 1996, if someone said, I'm engaged in Yahoo Parenting, you'd slowly back away. But Yahoo Parenting, the Today Show, website called discovery.com. The story is there is a mom who woke up in the middle of the night. We were asleep. I woke up, not to a noise. Nothing woke me up, said Stephanie Edson. She explained this on Good Morning America. I looked at my cell phone. It was 4.07. I went to check on the kid. Kid wasn't there. Kidnapping. Kidnapping thwarted. All right. Let's talk about this idea of mother's intuition. So many people believe in it. Is there anything to it? Whenever I ask a question like that, it's really good if Maria Konnikova is next to me. And she happens to be. Hello, Maria. Hey, Mike. Maria covers science and social science and psychology for The New Yorker. She's the author of, well, what's the new book called? The Confidence Game. The Confidence Game. So she, so she knows about people who tr- trick others and maybe even in this case trick themselves. Maria, mother's intuition. What's your intuition on mother's intuition? Well, Mike, my intuition is going to ruin our game very early on <laughs> because it involves calling bullshit on this concept from the Uh get-go. Let's just start, by the way, with this particular story. How in the world does this mother know that no noise and nothing woke her? What's her, what is her basis for even saying that? Right. 
a lot of times when we think we have intuition about things like that, there really are environmental cues that are telling us something is wrong. I mean, people who have children are more sensitive sleepers quite often. That or they don't care about the bastards and then they can sleep through anything. <laughs> but for the most part, mothers can really, you know, they're in tune to noise because they want to know, you know, is my baby alive? Is yeah. my baby breathing? Or if they have very little kids, they're so edgy, they can't even get a good night's sleep anyway, that they're always exactly. waking up and exactly. not noticing it when the kid's there, which it, is every other time. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my own mother is this way with her granddaughter. She sleeps with the door open when the granddaughter's sleeping over. And when she sleeps through the full night, she gets up to check on her just in case because it's been so quiet. She wants to make sure she's still okay. So if this woman is a typical mother, then to say that she didn't hear anything, I mean, that premise is off. Because she woke up, she, this woman, and her husband were able to pry Lainey out of the arms of the would-be kidnapper. And now here's, this is the uh, Yahoo Parenting article, very aptly named, uh, asking, but is Stephanie's intuition as savior plausible? Experts say, what do you think the word's going to be? Yes. Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> intuition is a way of knowing something where you don't know how you know it. Victor Seamus, University of Arizona professor of psychology and author, tells Yahoo Parenting. She didn't know how she knew to wake up, but she knew to wake up. The author goes on to cite a Mother's Day story where Michelle Mathis was seized by an overwhelming need to go and find her two-year-old daughter. Minutes later, she found her daughter floating in a pool. And in fact, these stories from Yahoo Parenting, most of them came out of anecdotes that were featured on the homepage of the Today Show. And I have to say, this article from the Today Show reads like it was from The Onion. Because you have all these statements of things that could not be explained that are so clearly explicable we have the mother who, she knew the five-year-old was swimming unsupervised in the pool, but she didn't know where the two-year-old was. What do you have to say about the intuition of that mother? A five-year-old and a two-year-old unsupervised in the pool? <laughs> yeah. That, that's just... I don't know. That seems to be a total my... lack of intuition. Yes. That's just or, the or end cognition. of my statement yeah. right there. And, his, and this is the best one. This is the best one from the Today Show article. <laughs> Mother of three, Andrea Alley of Manchester, New Hampshire, was on her way to pick up her toddler son, Timmy, from daycare. Andrea was later than usual, and as she began driving, she felt compelled to get to the daycare center as quickly as possible. What could have explained <laughs> what compelled her? I, I don't, I'm not a man of science. You know, you know, I, maybe, was she running late? Did she, did she feel the need to rush because she was later than usual? Just throwing that out there as a possible When I arrived at the daycare, I heard crying from the classroom and found Timmy and a teacher wiping blood from his forehead. Timmy and some of the other children were brought into another classroom that wasn't their own to wait for their parents to pick them up. So the kids who had to wait for the late parents had to go to a classroom. She got hurt. She really is a great mother. I she guess. really is. I, I, I feel like a jerk. There's a, there's a picture of her. People are always late. Seems like a very lovely family. Well, you know but what? come on! Come on is right, but you also have hit on something very important, which was the other thing that I wanted to mention about all of these things. People are always late. What yeah. I want to know about all of these mothers is how often the exact same thing happened, but everything was just fine. We have an incredibly selective memory, and we love the idea of not coincidence, but fate or intuition or, you know, things that happen for a reason. We really 
want to believe that that's true. So what do we do? We forget right away all of those hundreds upon hundreds of times when we're late picking our kid up, when we're letting our five-year-old, you know, swim unsupervised in the pool as one normally does, and um, everything is totally fine. <sighs> and you know, It does what? seem that the people who have this intuition don't have, like, just normal functioning cognition. I think that in all of these cases, that's completely right. But you'd be surprised. There are also very intelligent people who do have functioning cognition who also fall for this yeah. because... It's a really strong urge to engage in what's called magical thinking. This is actually the term for it. You know, we love to think, oh, see, I was here at this precise moment. Think about all of the cultural tropes we have, you know, star-crossed lovers and people who meet by fate. You know, we kept missing each other. And then one day, lo and behold, well, yes, that's because you live next door. Right. But <laughs> but it was, it was a wonderful, fated meeting. And we... We'd like to say this all the time. It's simply there's absolutely zero proof for it. The second that you do any sort of a controlled study of intuition, all effects go away. Well, let's talk about it. Now, there is one, if there's one guy who sh- keeps showing up in these mother intuition stories, it's Victor Seamus, S-H-A-M-A-S, a University of Arizona professor of psychology and an author. And he says, intuition's a way of knowing something. And then they write about him. Seamus has seen plenty of examples of the intuitive process. Makes it sound a little more complicated than magic thinking. The intuitive process through his research, including a well-cited study from many years ago in which more than 70% of pregnant women correctly intuited the sex of their babies. He's, he looked at 100 women at the Birth and Women's Health Center in Tucson. The women were split into two groups, those who had no preference for the sex of the child and women who had a preference. Of the 64 who had no preference, 16 were eliminated from the sample because they believed they knew the sex through some other source, like an old wives' tale about the position of the baby. So of this 48 women who said they believed they knew the sex based on a dream hunter gut feeling, 34 70%, actually closer to 71%, correctly determine the sex of the child. How do you explain that 34 of those 48 got it right? It must be intuition. So let's start with the fact that the study had only 100 people, mm-hmm. which isn't nearly enough to be able to make any determinations like this. That's very small power. Secondly, it was already split into two groups, and the two groups by the way, have absolutely zero scientific basis. Yeah. There is no theory that says that if I want a girl or if I want a boy, I'm going to be better able at determining whether my baby is in fact a girl That's or a true. boy. That's true. Preference, even as ridiculous as everything is, preference shouldn't have anything to do with exactly. intuition. There's okay. absolutely zero basis yeah. for that. So that, to me, as soon as I see that in any study, that smells of a practice called p-hacking, mm-hmm. which means... I am going to divide this data any way I possibly can so that I get a significant result. Yeah. And the study was done in 1998, and it's still being cited now on Yahoo Parenting. Which goes to our earlier point. We really love to believe things like that. Magical thinking really is powerful. By the way, there is such a thing as intuition, and that's called expertise. So there is such a thing as knowing something without knowing how you know it. And that results from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of practice where you learn enough about something that you don't always remember anymore the steps that got you to your conclusion. Um, And that kind of 
momentary expert opinion, that's what intuition, what accurate intuition is. Well, could a mother is. have that if they're an expert in their their child, their child's behavior after being with the child for three years? You say, you know, I know my kid. I know something is off. Not something from four rooms away, but, you know, intuiting something about the child's behavior. Could that be legit? Sure. It could be legit if your child is behaving strangely and you think that your child is sick. That's normally how illnesses are spotted and why you suddenly decide to bring your child to a doctor. Exactly. Just don't call it intuition. Call it observed behavior. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So this is an easy one. This is a layup, but I love it. Maria Konnikova, Mother's Intuition. Is that bullshit? Well, Mike, let me think about this for a second. Yes, yes, that is bullshit. But a 1998 study shows that 70% of people thought you were going to say bullshit. I guess they were right. They were, yes. Maria Konnikova covers science and psychology and social science for The New Yorker, and she plays Is That Bullshit with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Torture memos. Your government tortured people to death. Your government forced pureed raisins and hummus into the large intestine of a man through his rectum. Your government tortured to the point where CIA officers, CIA officers, were brought to tears. These are among the revelations of the CIA's torture memos. We knew they'd be gruesome, they are. Though it surely is the most, let's say, circumscribed acts of torture in the long history of torture. Torture has been used as a means of revenge and information extraction ever since there was information to be extracted and revenge to be had. So, was the information good? Well, here's Senator John McCain, who broke with the Republican Party in supporting publication of the report. I know from personal experience that the abuse of prisoners will produce more bad than good intelligence. I know that victims of torture will offer intentionally misleading information if they think their, chap- their captors will believe it. To which I would counter, but the torturers know that too. It's not as if the torturers took every waterboard gained admission at face value. It's not as if they didn't sort and vet. Of course, some of the false information did result in the detention of innocent people as well. I only say that to rebut the oversimplification that torture doesn't work, full stop. That's not entirely accurate. It's not true that torture doesn't work, period. But we owe it to ourselves to challenge ourselves to make real calculations based on what are trade-offs. If we say, as many have, that flat-out torture never works, it's not an honest debate. And listen, I have friends of mine and people I'm close with whose sisters, fathers, husbands, and brothers died on 9-11. If I knew, knew, that every kick to the ribs of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would lessen the chances of the next terror attack by 1%, then I'd personally deliver 100 kicks. But the calculus isn't clear. If America, as an idea, is worth defending, then America can't defend torture. Again, Senator McCain. What might come as a surprise, not just to our enemies, but to many Americans, is how little these practices did to aid our efforts to bring 9-11 culprits to justice and to find and prevent terrorist attacks today and tomorrow. Let me give you a justification for this report's publication, and apart from the argument which describes torture as either intrinsically wrong or a necessary evil. Apart from even the argument that it did help nab Osama bin Laden, or it didn't. This memo is a rebuke not just to torture, but to lying about torture, to evading oversight in order to torture, and in the name of saving a democracy, to establishing a torture infrastructure 
entirely apart from anyone who's been democratically elected. Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Dianne Feinstein performed an attention grab. That's one of the techniques described in the memo. Do you know that the CIA paid psychologists, two psychologists, $80 million over six years to run these programs? These men were named in the reports Grayson Swigert and Hammond Dunbar. Are they characters out of P.G. Wodehouse or the pledge class for the Omega House? No, they're real men. We know their real names. Jim Mitchell and Bruce Jensen. They're psychologists who had no particular training or expertise in the subject. Jensen wrote his dissertation on family therapy. Mitchell on the role of diet and exercise and controlling hypertension. The CIA stopped counting the number of detainees. They stuck to the number 98. They kept 21 secret from their congressional overseers. CIA hacked the Senate subcommittee's computers. They admitted to the Senate that five detainees didn't meet the CIA's own criteria for torture. They were telling themselves internally they had 26 detainees who shouldn't have even been detainees in this program. And the real number is probably even higher than that. So even if you believe the three former CIA chiefs who blasted the memo in a Wall Street Journal piece today, or Leon Panetta, who didn't support the program, but claimed in his book that it did help nail Osama bin Laden, or the Republicans on the Senate Intelligence Committee who call the report purely partisan. Ask yourself, if torture is indeed a necessary evil, shouldn't the evil be highly monitored? Shouldn't we corral this evil, keep it on as tight a leash in as well a lit a room as possible, to own it, to stop it from metastasizing? These torture memos are a hard pill to swallow, but it's better to swallow that pill than let the wounds fester. That's it for the show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has brother's intuition, a preternatural force that Merv Griffin will be having Dr. Joyce Brothers on as a guest. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, has Struthers intuition, the sixth sense that Gloria from All in the Family will soon be on his television soliciting donations for a small African village. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has Mother's Baw intuition, a tingling sensation whenever men in inverted flower pot energy domes sing paeans to S&M. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review or listen on Stitcher and don't give us a review. Maybe do both. Get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We are on Yo. Do you know what that means? I'm not going to go into more detail. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. I have other mother's intuition. I check to see if a mom claims to have an almost psychic connection to her offspring. And then I gingerly schedule play dates around that fact. Thanks for listening.